0: This podcast is brought to you by Wes Lindquist, the author of a new book entitled The Playbook to Managing Your Business by the Numbers. Please listen to podcast number 772, where Wes and Greg speak about the importance of knowing your organization's finances and having a well-developed process for forecasting, budgeting, and projecting cash flow that can make all the difference between you being profitable and losing money. If you want to learn more about Wes Lindquist and his new book, please go to www.thenumbersedge.com. That's thenumbersedge.com, where you can learn how to improve success in business by following the playbook and download a sample of his new book. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast with author Wes Lindquist about his new book, The Playbook to Managing Your Business. By the numbers. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Tom, as I do every time, I thank the listeners because uh, those are the people that have kept me on the air. And we have Tom Rath joining us. And are you joining us from Arlington, Virginia, where you live? Yes, I am. All right. Awesome. And for many of my listeners, you probably already know Tom Rath. He has sold Millions of books, um, but the new book we're going to be talking about is called Life's Great Question Discover How You Contribute to the World. He's also the author of Strength Finder 2.0 How Full Is Your Bucket? Eat, Move, Sleep, and Others. And Tom, I'm going to let him know a bit about you. Uh, Tom is an author, he's a researcher, um, he's spent the past two decades studying how work can improve human health and well-being, he has 10 books and has sold more than 10 million copies and made hundreds of appearances on global bestseller lists. Um, The first book was How Full Is Your Bucket, the instant number one New York Times bestseller, and led to a series of books that are used in the classroom around the world. His book Strength Finders 2.0 is Amazon's top-selling nonfiction book of all time, and Tom's other bestsellers including strengths based leadership, well-being, eat, move, sleep, and are you fully charged? So and the list goes on. Uh he spent 13 years at Gallup polls. Tom led the organization Strength Employee Engagement, Well-Being, and Leadership Consulting Worldwide. He's served for the past five years as the external advisor to Gallup Senior Scientists. He's also served as Vice Chair of the VHL Cancer Research Organization, has been a regular lecturer at University of Pennsylvania. And most recently, Tom co-founded a publishing company. He's also an advisor, investor, and partner in several startups and holds a degree from University of Michigan, University of Pennsylvania. And as I said earlier, lives in Arlington, Virginia, Virginia, with his wife Ashley and their two kids. Well, Tom, again, it's always an honor to have an author like yourself on not only who sold a lot of books, but made a big contribution to the world. And, you know, you start this book off with your story and you probably have a good place to start the interview is with your unique perspective on life. And at age 16, you learned of a rare and catastrophic genetic mutation, one where the doctor said it could lead to cancers in multiple organs. Um, you have beaten the odds, obviously, in spite of having battled pancreatic cancer, adrenal tumors, kidney cancer, and several spinal tumors. Now, how have your personal life experiences shaped your focus on making the personal contributions to the world?
1: You know, it is it is a good place to start, and thank you for inviting me and to your listeners for their time today. Um I, you know, when I learned about that diagnosis when I was 16 years old, it, in hindsight, it really did help me to reframe and reprioritize, uh, what I wanted to do over the next few decades. And that was about kind of meaningful things that I aspired to from a family standpoint, from a relationship standpoint. But it helped me to realize pretty early on that, you know, anything that I could work on or do, especially early on in my career, that would make a contribution that helped another human being and that essentially could continue to grow in my absence. That's the one of the key litmus tests that I've used over, especially over the last few years as I've worked through this more. Um, I think that's kind of a commonality we all have that uh, we, we may not know if we have tomorrow or a year or a decade or a generation left, but we know that we have today to invest our time In something that can continue to kind of grow exponentially, whether we're working on another job a week from now, another project, or whether we're no longer here 25 years from now. Those are efforts and most importantly, maybe investments in other people that can continue to grow exponentially, even when we're not working on those projects.
0: Yeah, it's a great opportunity for people to make a contribution. And that's what this book is about, how to determine how you're going to make a contribution. And you state in the book that time is more valuable when we can see our mortality on the horizon. Uh, obviously, you've been able to see it. Many people don't. Um, how do you propose to infuse the passion for life in the persons where they don't see their mortality on their horizons yet, and yet not even think about it?
1: You know, it's a great question, and that that's something that my thinking has changed on, uh, evolved on quite a bit over the last few years as I learned more about this topic, because at first, I thought, you know, I've got, I have a very rare example and uh, kind of case, as you described, and I assumed that maybe some of that was unique to me or my experience, um, given that I dealt with that at such a young age. But as I went back in and looked at some of the literature and psychological research on this topic, it turns out that when kids in that age range, uh, by the time they're 12 years old, all the way through the 18, roughly, when they face a challenge like that, a similar challenge like I had, um, on average, it produces what scientists now call uh, post-traumatic growth, where they end up somehow in a better place psychologically and in terms of their well-being and contribution the like, than people who don't face some of those challenges. So that uh, research really uh, challenged my conventional thinking about whether I should discuss and talk about and uh, share some of those experiences, because it does seem like that it is possible to extrapolate. And if you can hold a little bit of that thought about you know, we really all know that we have today and we need to do some things that matter. I think if you're able to hold that thought in your head, and one thing I've done that's been very practical that anyone can do is I was inspired in part to write this book by my favorite quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who said, Life's most persistent and urgent question is, What are you doing for others? And I know that sometimes sounds like a big existential grand question coming from Dr. King, but I actually took that question a couple of years ago and, you know, I, I didn't, even with my experiences, I didn't have the urgency to focus on the right things every day. So I started asking myself that question from Dr. King almost every single morning. So it's, what am I doing for others today? And what I found over the last few years of experimenting with this, at least anecdotally, is that when you frame up that question in the morning, it makes it a lot easier to ignore all of the stuff flying at us through our inboxes and our phones and media and television during the day and at least focus a little bit of time on something you're planning to work on or invest in or a conversation with another person that can continue to grow the next day. I mean, the reality is nobody is going to care at all if Tom Rath got to inbox zero this Tuesday. But it will matter if I spend an hour listening to someone who looks to me for guidance and helping them to think something through. It will matter if I spent an hour on an article that resonated with someone and helped to change the way they think about their career. And so um, I think we need to find little ways to connect short-term incentives during the day to those bigger longer-term goals that we talk about. It's one of the things that uh, I learned about when I several years ago when I worked on the book, uh, Eat, Move Sleep was, you know, I, I have all these chronic health threats that you would think help me to make better dietary decisions each day, but they don't at all. Um, I, I have no more willpower because I'm facing cancer and all these long-term health threats. But I do know that if I eat a healthier lunch today, I have enough energy to be my best for a client meeting at three o'clock in the afternoon. And I have more energy if I'm active to be a good dad with kids that are nine and 11 years old tonight. So it, I think in both cases, we can learn about connecting short-term incentives with what also happens to be in our longer-term interests.
0: Yeah, and it's a great way to ask that question, Yona. What are you doing for others today? I I think that um, it's so far removed from a lot of people. Now, I would think maybe if you even – it doesn't matter if you work in a for-profit company or a non-for-profit company – and frequently, as you said, the inboxes get full, people are distracted by all kinds of other things. But the question is, is what have you done to help somebody else? Or what are you doing to help somebody else? And I think whether it's doing a podcast or writing a book or inspiring somebody through um, a documentary or whatever it might be, the key is that you're helping people elevate and inspire them to do something different with their life. And anyway, know you've developed a website called Contribify where the reader can use the access code in the back of this book um, and take an assessment. Now, I took that assessment, and we'll get into that in a minute because we talked about the possibility of you speaking to me about my personal assessment. But can you explain the purpose of the assessment, assessment and what the readers are going to learn um, after they take this assessment?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked about kind of the broad framing of that. One of the things I've realized through uh, almost two decades of working on books now is that, you know, uh, I think it's reading and learning is important, but if you can give somebody something to do that stimulates a conversation with another person, uh, it has even more long-term and lasting value. And so uh I realized early on with this book that if you want to get people focused on contribution instead of focused inward on themselves and the like, um, it would help a lot to give them a tool and language and something that they can share with others to get to know other people faster and so forth, and uh, a language to use around contribution. So we developed, we spent just as much time working on the website as we did with the book on this project, and uh, we put together a site where anyone who reads the book has two codes in the back to go in and uh, build a profile. So they go through an inventory that uh, asks them pretty broad questions to build this profile about uh, what are the big roles you play in life? What are the, like, so for me, it's being a dad and a husband, a researcher and the like, what are the miles or most influential life experiences that have shaped who you are and why you do what you do? And so just talking about that with someone has produced a lot of growth that I've seen. And, it asks people about their how they would describe their strengths in their words. And then it takes them through a series of activities uh, where they prioritize how they think they can best contribute to a given team. And my real hope with that is just that anyone who reads the book shares one of those codes with a friend or a family member or a colleague and that they have a conversation about Uh, what really matters in their work and how they can influence other people, how they can contribute, and then maybe even as a team, how they can complement one another.
0: Yeah, it's a great opportunity. I know I took it, and um, maybe it's a great opportunity for us to kind of discuss it a minute. I know that it says my greatest contributions were teaching, visioning, perceiving, and my defining roles and um, miles and strengths uh were advisor, father, husband, uh founding a toy company that I founded, my son's leukemia, a bankruptcy I went through, and my strengths were compassionate, inquisitive, and intuitive. Um I love the way that it's done around operate, create and relate, which is really the second half of your book. Um would you want to basically make some comments about uh, my own personal profile so that people could get an idea of what this is about? Um, or how would you like to handle this?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great place to just jump in because, I mean, this is it's encouraging as you read those things off to me quickly that I haven't heard before that, I mean, my I guess I forgot to mention this, but my bigger picture goal here is that this profile is a far more human and personal way for us to get to know one another than looking at a resume or recruiting people with a job description. I don't, I don't think you could create a much uh, less personal and sterile tool than a modern resume if you tried to scientifically. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what you just described gives me a lot of interesting cues into who you are and why you do what you do. And um, when you talk about those roles as an advisor and a father and, the things that you do. I think that's, there was a great column in the uh, New York times a few months ago by David Brooks, I think, where he talked about how we need to focus more on eulogy values instead of resume values. And, um, that really rung true to me that if we get, uh, people around a work team together and say, here's who I am and why I do what I do personally and professionally, I think that's a better place to start and getting to know one another. And, um, the way you talked about, uh, starting the toy company and the foundation and, uh, both it's important. I think you mentioned a bankruptcy as well, that that when people start to talk about these life experiences that have shaped why they do what they do, Mm -hmm. I've found that that leads to all kinds of kind of growth and understanding of one another. If we're going to continue to, uh, move forward and work together on an ongoing basis. And, uh, I, I think what you mentioned in terms of the way you prioritize those contribution categories. Uh you said it was the
0: teaching, teaching and the vision. Visioning, visioning and, perceiving. and
1: perceiving. Is that right? Okay. Well that's so, the
0: way it came out. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, yes. and
1: that's I mean it's it's fascinating as we've kind of talked to. You. I mean, obviously what you do at this podcast is one of the best examples I could think of of that kind of uh teaching and helping people to see what a better and broader future might look like, which ties into that visioning as well. And it's interesting, I when I uh, go through this profile for myself, a lot of, on teams I join where I'm doing what I want to do most of the time, a lot of my contributions fall into that area of create out of those three you mentioned with create and relate and operate. But you know the, the reality is on any team, if I, the way I've kind of put this together, working back from what the world needs and uh, what jobs are out there in the marketplace, most teams also do need to build those relationships with one another and kind of operate and execute and get things done. So, I mean, probably like you in an ideal world, I'd spend a lot of time in that area of creating envisioning teaching and teaching the like. Uh, but you do need to make sure if you're looking at this from a team lens that you have the people around you that are going to help to make sure that things are getting done at the right levels of quality and you're, everything's organized and scaling out for a broader audience and, um, you know, I, I personally also struggle with the uh, relationship piece where you hopefully there's somebody on a team who can do that a lot better than I can. But there are times when we all need to fill in. So I'd be interested to hear you talk about some of your uh, observations and experiences, because what I've learned through this exercise and talking to people about their profiles here is in addition to the kind of understanding who you are and how you can contribute from a team vantage point, there's often kind of a negotiation about, given who composes each team, how are you going to uniquely contribute versus complement and make sure you're not overlapping with other people on that team?
0: Well, I think one of the things that this profile brought out, and I think for all the listeners, it's important to know that uh, this is included with the price of the book. So you, this is a, this is a huge bonus, uh, one. And two, as far as me on team, um, I seem to be the catalyst. Um, the profile even stated it. I'm the one that helps people get together. I'm the one that resolves conflict. Um, I've always been that one. Although I'm the person that avoids conflict, um, it's it's interesting that in this profile it says that I am the one uh, and that you hit it right on by the way I answered the questions to the assessment uh, to bring people together to create more harmony and balance uh, and to help groups move forward toward a goal, because I'm visioning, Um and that is something that I've really done all my life. So, I I like I the way that, you
1: talk about it as catalyst. That's cool. That makes sense.
0: Yeah. No, I've been the catalyst in many cases to do that. You know. So this, I just want to state to the listeners that the that the profile is is very. I think what there is was there eighty questions in that profile. I can't remember. It's a Yeah, I
1: think there are kind of 50 multiple choice that ask you to prioritize. And there are a bunch of open end questions about the big life events and the roles you play and things like that. So I mean, the, the dream of it is that especially the first page of that profile, is kind of like a baseball card or a snapshot or a scorecard of who you are from a much more personal and emotional standpoint, if you're getting to know a new work team or someone, you're a new colleague and so forth.
0: Yeah, really enjoyed it. Now, you say simply put our putting our strengths and efforts must be focused on specific contributions, and that's what this is about. And that we can make um, to that we can make to other people's lives, which is the question you said. But most of us are caught up in the daily demands that we just talked about, and we're continually putting off serious reflection about how to make a greater contribution to the teams, the families, and the communities around us. How do we create work? that has a focus on purpose and a contribution versus just a paycheck like the story that you talk about where, in this case, your wife's grandfather said, um, everyone works to live and no one lives to work. I thought that was a great statement that your wife's grandfather made. (laughs) It was.
1: You know, it's telling because I think it's, It's kind of a portrait of the evolution between people and organizations, at least in the last hundred years or so, based on what I've studied, where working primarily for a paycheck, which was kind of a foundational component of our modern society moving from the industrial revolution forward, is that's kind of been built and baked into so many expectations for generations that There's a lot of gravity that's still pulling us in that direction. And um I'd still speculate that I mean a majority of the people I talk to today would say the first and primary purpose of their work is that paycheck. And the the challenge is as a product of that, organizations have become very adept and savvy even, I would say, at gauging how much discretionary effort they're extracting from each of us as employees when we show up at work each day. And their entire sciences that I've been a part of and studied intensively, they're built around that. And it's helped organizations to be a lot more productive. The flip side of that, however, is that on average, I think most people's health and well-being is poor off because of the organization they're a part of today. Uh, um, a good friend of mine and professor at Stanford, uh, Jeff Pfeffer, wrote a book about a year ago now titled uh, Dying for a Paycheck. And while it's not the most enthusiastic or optimistic title, I guess, um, it's a pretty <laughs> accurate summary of the yeah. current relationship that people have with their work. And the, the good news is what I've learned in the last 10 years is I think we can all expect much more and we can expect to have a career over the next 25, 50 years, that's far more than a monetary bribe, which is essentially what it's been in the past. And I would concur can,
0: with you. Yes.
1: We, yeah. we can expect something that can be uh, far more than a paycheck, but that the thing I've learned the hard way in the last 10 years, to be really honest, in trying to get organizations to care about measuring employee well-being and the like, is that I think each of us individually needs to own that. and, we need to ask some tough questions about are we better parents because of the work that we do? Are we better friends to our, in our social circles? Uh, are we more involved in our communities? Are, do we have more financial security? Cause boy, that really does matter. Um, and is our physical health better? I, I mean, I I'm really convinced that you should be able to end your work day with more health and energy and well-being than when you started in the morning. And if you're not in that place, It takes time to get there, but I think over the arc of a career, there are going to be times you make some forward progress. There are going to be times when you fall down for several years at a time in many cases. But over time, I think we can make some progress where we know that our lives are getting better because of the work that we do. And as you mentioned, a lot of that starts by, at a very granular level, connecting the work we do with the positive influence it has on another person today, because if we can do that each successive day, That's what leads to a more meaningful career over time, I think.
0: Well, I would believe it does. I mean, I told you before I came on that I'm doing some consulting for Mayo Clinic 24 Life, which is a combination well-being application you were just talking about. But the research showed from the Mayo that um, forgiveness, uh, gratitude, trying something new, all of these 12 Habits of Highly Healthy People. Basically, if they're implemented and people get it, they end up improving their health and well-being. Cholesterol goes down. um, Happiness levels go up. uh, You know, all of these things which people say, oh, well, you know, you got to get your BMI down. You just mentioned it yourself a few minutes ago. You might not be eating the way that you should for what you've got, but you recognize you're aware. And I think it is the awareness that these things actually are having, you know, meditating daily, whatever it might be, my morning yoga classes. So I think those all have an effect. And we, the, we in this major, um, what I'm going to call it the matrix of life that we have to put together, it's, it's really challenging to kind of figure it out. And I think your book here, Life's Great Questions, does that. Now you state, that we cannot rely on companies alone to help us maximize our contribution and improve our well-being, that it's an inside job. Uh, you provide an insight into awakening within us how to find our happiness, and it's through reconstructing the day. And I thought that one was a good one because when I got my degree in spiritual psychology, they said if a camera was following you every day and you played the camera back, would you like what you saw? Would you speak to the listeners about how we, this book and your insights can help make someone think more about the contribution and reconstructing their day, Tom, is, is brilliant. It's, it's a brilliant way for people to awaken to say, wow, if I played the camera back, w- was this serving me or was it not serving me? How'd
1: you yeah. find that one? <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's interesting. I got that idea from the methods over the last twenty years that we've learned and tested and used to study people's well-being. It turns out just to really oversimplify a couple decades of quality well-being research, which is hard to do. Um, yeah. The yeah. the if you ask somebody to evaluate their life overall um, and say, how is what's your overall life satisfaction? on a scale of one to 10 or whatever, that honestly what I've learned is it doesn't tell me a lot about how people actually lead their days and whether they're happy, whether they're stressed out, whether they have energy, all those types of things. But if you ask a person to go back and reconstruct yesterday, that's one way to do it. Um, and they put together what they're doing moment by moment, hour by hour. I think it tells you so much more about someone's actual daily quality of life. And in one study I was a part of, uh writing up and working on it 10, maybe 10 years ago, we actually had people just, we randomly pinged them with handheld devices throughout the day. When the device vibrated, we asked them a bunch of questions about, who are you with? What are you doing? How much do you enjoy it? And it turns out that momentary reconstruction, I find infinitely more valuable in terms of telling me how somebody's actually doing throughout the day. So my learning from some of that work is that we need to step back and look at our typical work day and say, how, how within your normal routine and patterns throughout the day, how can you see the people you serve and acknowledge that in the moment? So just a couple quick examples. If you're in food service and you're preparing food for people, uh, instead of being trapped in the kitchen with no windows in the back, how can you at least get out for a little bit and see someone enjoying one of the meals that you've prepared? Because if you can see that person eating the food you've prepared, You feel better about your work. You make more nutritious food statistically, and people enjoy the meals you prepare more. When scientists study this, Uh, if you're a radiologist who's reading, looking at medical scans all the day, throughout the day, and you just see the radiographic films without a, a face or a picture of the patient, you produce significantly shorter reports, and it decreases diagnostic accuracy. So. How can you bring the face of that person into the work that you're doing? If you're a software developer, how can you hear stories from people that are benefiting from the technology that you're creating? General Electric uh, brings people into their uh, MRI manufacturing plants to hear some stories of how that was helpful and beneficial during their diagnosis with cancer and the like. So we need to find little ways to bring reminders of the people we serve into our work and bring some of that humanity back because it's those subtle reminders to give us energy to do more and to keep moving forward. And my one last suggestion on that is if you struggle to do that for yourself, just start doing it for someone else you work with. Help them to acknowledge how an irate customer walked into a retail store, let's say, and if they got that person who came in really angry and frustrated back to neutral, that's a big victory for that person's day, and it may change their trajectory of what they're doing, and they just need someone to help them call that out.
0: Yeah, it's great advice. It's a, it's a good way for us to create this awareness within our lives. And, you know, Tom, you state that we do change over time and that we are not stuck with the personalities that we might have right now. And I know for me, you know, I've watched how much I've actually changed and that's those experiences in life, uh, that, that help us change. And you quote psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman. He says, it's good to accept and love who you are, but it's also good to know when you can change for the better. What advice do you have or what are some of the ways that we can change to make more of a positive contribution to society in your estimation as you speak to my listeners?
1: Yeah, you know, it's been an interesting learning curve for me on that because I've kind of grown up around a family of psychologists and all my backgrounds in psychology um, and there's been kind of a, 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 somewhat of a dogma in the, in the personality world over the years about people not changing that much over the span of decades and so forth. Um, and I know I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I've always turned up as an introvert on that introversion, extroversion curve on kind of big five profiles and the like. And, uh, I've, I realized at some point, as I read that quote you mentioned from Scott Barry Kaufman and uh, some other research I've been looking at recently, that I probably used that as a crutch in many cases to avoid engaging in social settings and opportunities that um, likely could have been pretty beneficial for my well-being, for other people, for my work, and so forth. Um, so I what I've learned over the years, and um, I, I think it's been really helpful from new research in the last two or three years, is that if you try and push the boundaries of your personality a little bit on the margins, especially in a case like that, where it might be helpful to have more social interaction, engage more because those social relationships are really the foundational place for growth and well-being in life from what I've studied. Um, that that can be good to try and push that on the margins a little bit. So I, I would encourage people to, I mean, it's true that you, you can't just radically change your personality in short periods of time. Um, and doing so is probably, you continue to run into walls. But there are some things you can do on the margins if you orient your goal towards creating more well being for other people and making a more positive contribution to your social circles and to society.
0: Well, I think that you can transmute uh, elements or aspects of your personality. And it happens as a result of you becoming aware of what you're doing. And I think any psychologist you know, from Carl Rogers was always great about asking questions, you know. And I think the more we ask good questions of ourselves and others, the greater our awareness becomes about what we can do to make those changes. And you state that you hear from people weekly that they're dissatisfied or lost in their career. You mentioned that once the mental switch goes on, there's usually it's usually too late and we should be asking those questions earlier as who can does or will eventually benefit from our effort. How would you propose that people start to look at their jobs so that they can shift their perspective early and start to design some careers that have some meaning versus them slogging through for the paycheck?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting for me to see how uh, I think most people today still end up in jobs, uh, especially early on in their careers, that it's either society telling them what to do from a financial or kind of prestige motivation standpoint. Or in many cases, it's just because that's what their parents did and that's what they knew and could see that they were growing up. There's some fascinating studies on that over generations in Europe over the last hundred years. Um, and so we kind of end up in these societal defaults instead of really asking good questions about where we can contribute most. And um, then you hear, I mean, other challenges, you get a lot of advice about, oh, well, follow your passions and follow your interests. And I, d- I don't think that's the right place to start. The more I've dug into this topic, I think if you start with what you're passionate about or yourself, it begins with a presumption that you're at the center of the world And everything else needs to start circling into that orbit or fall in line around you. And what I would challenge people to do a little bit differently is to start by looking in a very practical, granular way about what does the world around you need? Start with the uh, demand side of the equation and say, what's the demand out here? What, What does my community need? What does my organization need? What does my family need? What does my school need? Whatever it might be. And then work back to say, given these needs, how could I connect point A, which point A is who you are and your natural talents and your interests and your passions with point B where point B is the real practical need in society. So I I forgot to mention that, but that's where that whole Contribify inventory started was I went and looked at the U S department of labor statistics has a big database of all the things people actually do in our society that they get paid for. And I tried to narrow that down. I eventually got down to kind of 50 categories and that's where those contributions stem from. So I would encourage people to look at the list of the 12 contributions that we narrowed down to as a starting point for what people need and how can you start to draw some direct connections with what you think
0: you do best and those big societal needs. That's great advice for the listeners. Now, kind of wrapping up, the second half of the book really is all about life's greatest question and the 12 primary contributions. Um, we talked a little bit about it in my own profile, create, relate, operate. Um, from your estimation, you know, as you get to that point in this book where you're really discussing all the elements that are associated with uh, the Contribify profile about the model itself, what would you tell people or what advice would you want to give the listeners? Um, because the second half is about understanding Um, not only that, but also then taking the profile. What what kind how would you kind of wrap that up for the listeners and put a ribbon around it?
1: Yeah, I would say that um I mean one big part of it that we've talked about quite a bit is a more personal and meaningful way to describe why you do what you do. So I think if if listeners could think about how can I, whether it's just using the questions we've talked about or using the profile that goes with the book, put together uh, uh, one page or a few bullets on who I am and why I do what I do that you can really identify with and use it to focus your daily efforts and how you prioritize things as we've talked about. The, the second piece that I would uh, encourage listeners to think about is, um, what I learned from that research on teams that we didn't go into as much is that almost any team has to create something. They could have to make a product or have a service. They need to have relationships with one another. If they don't have closer relationships and energize each other, that team's going nowhere. And they need to operate and get things done and continue to scale. And so if you assume that almost any type of team needs to do those three things, I think the key aspect of that is having a discussion as a team, whether you take 20 minutes to do it or ideally an hour or so and say, okay, right before we get started and I'll start charging down a road in one direction because we have common interests. And then we realize six months later, we were all doing the same thing. And we all got together because we had the same personality types. Um, how can you go around the group and say, here's how I think I can uniquely contribute and have kind of a storming and negotiating session about how each person plans to optimally contribute to this team over the next three, six and 12 months? Because I'm pretty sure when I've seen teams do this early on, boy, it sets it kind of greases the skids for much smoother work where people are moving in complementary directions and have a much deeper understanding and appreciation of one another as you move forward over the next year.
0: I'm glad that you mentioned that element about the teams because most people out there today are, are put in a situation where they're working in a team doesn't matter where they are. And it's really important that um, diversity be part of that team. And as you mentioned also, looking at each other's personalities and looking at their ability to contribute and what do they contribute to the team. I know software designers and engineers and developers, of which my son was one at Adobe for seven years, it's a big thing for them to find the diversity and also to work well together as teams and also to apply some of their own intuition, believe it or not uh into those circles that they're that they're working in. So that is a great way for us to kind of wrap this up. I do want my listeners to know that if you go to tomrath.org, um, you have an opportunity there to look at the resources. And I will say those resources over all the books that Tom has written are really quite well documented. And if you really want to take a deeper dive into uh, Life's Great Questions or any of the other books. There's resources there. Um, also, uh, you had did a documentary, which is up at the website as well. Um, there is a plethora, I will say, of resources there based on Tom's work. And Tom, I really appreciate having you on Inside Personal Growth, spending a little bit of time with our listeners, giving them a view into not only your life, um, but also how they can improve their own life about uh, really asking the question about life's great question, how are they going to contribute? Is there one last word you'd want to leave our listeners as we depart here from this podcast?
1: Yeah, I would just uh, thank your listeners for their time and attention today and uh, challenge them to spend a little bit of time every single day thinking about how they can contribute to some effort that will continue to help others grow
0: in their absence. Perfect. Tom, thanks so much for being on, and you have a beautiful day. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much to you for your
1: time, and I look forward to talking to you about Eat, Move, Sleep soon.